what makes place writing important and essential is that it gives the reader the desire to go to that place. And I think back to, to, to Bourdain, what made him successful probably is the fact that he made the viewer feel like he was in that place, eating that meal with a desire to go to that place and eat that meal or those kinds of meals. And also that he would be fun to have a meal with. <laughs> yeah. Right? Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, a little over one week after the death of Anthony Bourdain, I talk about travel writing and travel reportage, that is, what it encompasses, how it's often less than perfect, and what it looks like when it's done well. Since Bourdain died, there's been an outpouring of sorrow, and much of it focuses on how extraordinary he was in bringing nuance and humanity to faraway places through his empathy, his honesty, and his passion for food and the rituals that surround the ways we prepare and enjoy food. I have, in my own writing, praised Anthony Bourdain's talents as a travel reporter, the way he could get to the heart of a faraway place without falling back on travelese. And by travelese, I mean those mushy phrases that are all too often used to describe places, phrases like vacation paradise and land of contrast and hidden gem, that have been used so much in the context of travel that they've become meaningless. Bourdain actively fought against these cliches, and his work was consistently opinionated, counterintuitive, and self-aware of both the strengths and the limitations of television. And in hosting a show that stayed true to his unique sensibilities, Bourdain hinted at a universally relevant notion that travel, if one can view it as more than a consumer act, has a way of revealing a world that is more complicated and exasperating and unexpectedly delightful than one could ever imagine while sitting at home. So I guess the question, now that a talent with the skills and influence of Bourdain is no longer with us, is this. How, at its best, can travel writing and reportage affect how we see the world? Where has it been, and how has it been effective, and what might it look like in the future? To help me explore these questions, I reached out to three veteran travel writers. Eddie Harris, author of several travel books, including Native Stranger and Still Life in Harlem. Alden Jones, who wrote the award-winning travel essay collection The Blind Masseuse, and Thomas Swick, a former travel editor and author of books like Unquiet Days and The Joys of Travel. As travel writers, the four of us represent different experiences and different points of view, but we all share the conviction that travel writing is important in the ways it can humanize other places in ways that go beyond standard news journalism, and that at its best, travel writing uses a personal lens to delve into the nuanced realities of daily life away from home, finding human commonalities even as it explores cultural differences. We spoke by Skype from several corners of the planet, including Boston, South Florida, and provincial France, and we started the conversation by reflecting on what Anthony Bourdain's work represented. Let's listen in. The conversation about travel writing has strangely shifted in recent days uh, because of the death of Anthony Bourdain. Eddie, I know you only know Anthony through his book, Kitchen Confidential. The other two of you know his television work. So I guess I'll ask Tom and Alden and, and Eddie, you can chime in if you want. What made... Anthony Bourdain, good. Well, Rolf, I think you kind of touched on it in that essay that you wrote, I, I forget how long ago, that he, he didn't engage in travelese. You know, he, he was pretty honest um, in his depiction of places. The thing I always point out, though, is that, you know, he wasn't a travel writer in the, in the traditional sense. I mean, he was a visual, um, he was a TV journalist. And, um, you know, he depended on words, but also images. And he wasn't out there traveling around alone like most of us do. He had a team, so, you know, you didn't see them, um, which changes the dynamic as well. But, I mean, he was, he was remarkably good at what he did. And, you know, in this visual age, he brought the world to, to Americans who, many of whom, you know, don't travel around the world. I don't really put him in the same category with, with the kind of traditional travel writer. Okay, well, we can, we can move on to the written word itself. But I think one thing about Bourdain is that he had this platform. He had this giant platform television, which I want to get back to in a second. But Alden, I'm curious to know your take on Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, I think um, what Anthony Bourdain does for travel writing is point out the importance of the persona, right? Like the filter through which you're seeing the world. Because I think one of the problems that we um, we have with 
travel writing as a genre as it was, you know, in the 90s or the aughts was that it was, you know, the platform was this glossy magazine with a sort of stable of writers where you just, you know, like you went off to a country you didn't know much about without really much of a mission, just because a magazine was sending you there, right? So the fact that he was a, a chef and that he was focused on food and that he was focused on, you know, not just like, you know, the gourmet or, you know, like he was interested in the local food gave him a real filter through which to like engage with the culture, you know? So um, I think with, when I teach travel writing, a lot of what's hard to teach students is it's not just, it's not enough to just be like, this country is interesting. So I'm going to tell you about it. You have to have some kind of, of, you know, like a channel through which to tell the story. And I think food was really his channel and he was just so charming. And, um, you know, he just had this, curiosity about the world and about people and about other cultures that he he really used his platform very well and working with CNN he could go anywhere so um he did that and that was that was pretty amazing yeah i think uh, i think his personality is a big thing like charisma was a big part of of who he was and i think you know he's been praised recently just because he didn't do the obvious thing like he would go into the black neighborhood of baltimore he would go into into uh gauteng uh, in South Africa instead of the Western Cape. Um, he, he found ways to, uh, to humanize parts of the world that are usually glossed over by news headlines or, or the generalizations of glossy travel magazines. Um, you know, I think all of us strive for that to a certain extent in our own writing. I mean, it's, it's not like he's the only one who was trying to find a, uh, find a counterintuitive story, but somehow he was super cool about it. Like, he was, I think if you put me in front of a camera and, and I tried to tell the same stories, I would be too earnest that somehow um, Anthony Bourdain had a way of telling stories without seeming too prim or on yeah. the nose in his counterintuitive approach to places that he was able to just come in and say, hey, I'm sitting down and having a meal. You know, it didn't seem like he was teaching us a lesson of humanity when he sat down with, with Palestinians or, or people in the Congo or people in, uh, in you know, the black part of Cape Town. He was just this guy who effortlessly and in a concrete way without using the jargon of inclusivity, just put it out up there on the screen. So, yeah. And he was always very, um, ver you know, he was verbal about his ambivalence about things like he could be honest about, you know, like having having knowledge on one level and not having knowledge on another level or, you know, going to Las Vegas and kind of hating it and kind of loving it. Well, if I can if I can jump in, recognizing that I don't know him as a TV personality to sure. suggest that. Well, on the one hand, he goes into these places, from what I understand, which may seem somewhat counterintuitive. At the same time, he's going with a camera team. And so he's not really in those places. He's not really in the black part of Baltimore. He is in a bubble inside the black part of Baltimore. And I think that's what Tom is alluding to when he says that there's a, there's a distance between what he is doing and sort of whatever real travel writing is. On the other hand, I think it is our own conceit to think that we, as travel writers in a classical sense, are doing anything different than what Bourdain was doing. We still are removed from the setup, no matter how authentic we think we're being, if you know what I mean. So do you mean like it's sort of this Heisenberg effect that uh, are the act of, of looking at a community um, somehow changes it and becomes performative, Eddie? Well, in a certain way, yes, but also in a certain way, we rec we have to recognize that we're only there in a temporary in a temporary way. We don't really li live in this place, whatever place we're describing. We're not really a part of that community. We are, to be blunt and a, a bit rude about it, we are we've gone to the zoo, and we are describing what we see at the zoo. And when our time at the zoo is all, is up, we go home. So the, the, the notion that we are somehow more authentic than somebody with a camera team, I think, is erroneous. That's interesting. I think one thing I want to work toward in this conversation, I want to cover some ground first, but what I want to work toward is how do you navigate that well? 
you know, because, uh, you know, Eddie, you've written several travel books. Um, actually, we all have. We've all written travel books and, and written for periodicals as well. Obviously, there's a difference between travel writing rendered well and travel writing rendered less than well. And even though Anthony Bourdain operated in this bubble that included a lot of technicians and a lot of people who were usually off camera, although Bourdain had a way of like wisecracking about his cameraman or about his producer of breaking the fourth wall. Um, still, he had to work in this in this performative realm. There's there's a degree with which we are reporting on on communities not our own, and and as Eddie points out, we are not staying there. We're moving through these communities. It was actually my first travel book was about a place where I lived uh, for two and a half years. And um, it was my book about Poland. And, you know, when I, I teach travel writing, I, I give uh, students my list of, of kind of the, the travel books that made me. And I divide them into two types. I divide them into the itinerant travel book, which is the standard travel book where the writer travels through a place. And then there's the sedentary travel book where the writer goes somewhere and lives, um, you know, either for a year or so, or sometimes, you know, for the rest of his life, Gerald Brennan uh, in, in Spain. Um, so, you know, th there are there, the degrees of, of immersion and, and distance uh, when you travel. Right. That's a, that's a good point. Um, and Eddie, your your books are peripatetic, right? How would you characterize yourself as as a travel writer? I know you've written novels as well, but in the in the travel sense, how would you characterize your own work? Well, I wouldn't. I wish I were a travel writer because I do travel, and there is most often some place in in my writing. But I don't actually consider myself a travel writer. I'm a writer who travels. And my book about Harlem, for example, it was a sedentary book. I was in Harlem for two and a half years. But at the end of those two and a half, or at the end of the book about my two and a half years there, I'm not sure you'll know as much about Harlem as you know about me. So I'm not sure I fit into the, the traditional travel writer category. I wish I could. Because I wish magazines would send me to all of these cool places that I want to go. You know, if you look at the stories that end up in the best American travel writing, the majority are not stories that were plucked from travel magazines. They're, they were plucked <laughs> from, no, it's true, general okay. interest magazines, uh, quarterlies, um, online websites. So, you know, travel well, magazines aren't the, the holy grail. I think that that's changed. I think that shows an interesting movement in travel writing. I think back in 2000, it was mostly Condé-Nast Traveler, Travel and Leisure. I think it, it, it was sort of a glossy magazine base from which Jason Wilson, the editor, called his, his travel. But he was, he was a creative writer. So he, he looked at, you know, like the literary magazines and he'd started a literary travel magazine in, I think, 1998 called Grand Tour. Mm -hmm. Which to me was was like a revelation because I was like, oh, this genre exists. Like that was before there was a, a shelf in Barnes and Noble for travel literature. It was travel guides, and then it was you know like there was there wasn't really a place for travel literature. And uh, the fact that you know, that was actually encountering this magazine was the first time I tried to write a travel piece. Um, about my time in Costa Rica. And I'm much more of a travel memoirist. I don't think I, I'm not, I haven't really written very much at all for glossy magazines. I used to write for Time Out New York when they had a travel section. But um, I'm definitely more of a, you know, like the human interest and the human interest is sometimes myself, like what I learned about myself while traveling um, kind of travel writer. Um, but I think, I think there is, there has been a, a really interesting expansion of the genre in terms of what constitutes travel writing and also what, like how it's gotten better as a result of this expansion. And, and um, Rolf, we've talked earlier about how, you know, like the movement in on some level for women travel writers has been about, you know, self-discovery while traveling, a la Eat, Pray, Love or Wild. Um, so there's there's that and it's sort of that got sort of stuck in a in a rut as well. Um, but uh, but I think there 
it's that sort of started opening it up to more of the the memoir kind of discovery of like I'm going to investigate some kind of issue and I happen to be traveling so but isn't isn't that in a way what it's all really about and maybe we should start to move the category away from travel writing because when you say travel writing to John Q public he thinks you're writing guidebooks yeah maybe we should start calling it place writing mm-hmm. because we're writing about a place and part of that place is the writer himself because you do write about yourself in this new place and part of the discovery is not just this new environment but you in this new environment and part of the i think the whole idea what makes place writing important and essential is that it gives the reader the desire to go to that place and i think back to 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 bourdain what made him successful probably is the fact that he made the viewer feel like he was in that place eating that meal with a desire to go to that place and eat that meal or those kinds of meals and also that he would be fun to have a meal with <laughs> yeah right i think this is distinctive too to the era that we're in you know as as recently as the 19th century there was this notion that travel writing had a mission of describing other places for people who would never go there um and that sort of it's almost been like a technological change you know by um there was there was sort of some name travel writers in the 19th century, and then you have like the the men and women uh, named in Paul Fussell's abroad, sort of between the wars travel writing, and then you have this 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 newer canon of travel writers, sort of the jet age travel writers who bring in more memoiristic elements, um, and and you have like the Jan Morris's, Pico Iyer, Tim Cahill, Eddie is probably included in this because he his first. A book was in that late 20th century time when no longer was the mission to describe a place for people who had never been there. But like Eddie says, uh, describe a place through a very personalized lens that's different from journalism because you know who's taking you there. You're not pretending to be objective. You're, uh, you're, you bring your own filter in there. So I think that's a, this is a good distinction to make. And, and I'm curious to know what Tom thinks because he's edited travel sections before is that we have this, this sense that, um, Travel writing is guidebooks, or it is a glossy magazine that tells us where to get the best cappuccino in Kathmandu. Uh, or even nowadays, it, it it's travel media involves Instagram, which has these very, very heavily filtered photos that tell us about other places. And so it feels like the mission of travel writing is tied into that point of view that Eddie is talking about. And so I think we should uh, differentiate that, that basically we're talking about the, the world of literary travel writing. Well, you've hit on, I think, the fundamental problem that travel writing has, and that it's, it's this huge umbrella that that encompasses everything from Fodor's Guide to Venice to Bruce Chatwin's In Patagonia. And, you know, as Eddie said, when people hear travel writing, they think guidebook, they think the, the story they see in their Sunday travel section, um, you know, and most people aren't familiar with travel literature. Um, and... You know, most of us, I mean, what we're talking about here mainly, I think, is, is the latter. Um, we're interested in language. We're interested in, in insight, getting beneath the surface of a place, which, you know, service, service articles aren't. Um, you know, and, you know, Key West, and I think Ralph, you were there, um, had a, um, a seminar a number of years ago on travel writing, and I think they called it spirit of place. I don't think they called it travel writing, mm-hmm. and and I you know I, I really like that definition of, of of travel writing because I think you know you can write about the place you live, um, and it is um, in a way it is travel writing because it's about that place. I don't know if you guys remember when the travel sections, the literary travel sections of bookstores, called them armchair travel. It was a time when you, as the reader, were supposed to pick up a book, sit down, and travel along with this person, and not go to the best cappuccino in Kathmandu, which anybody can do, but to have an experience through this writer's eyes, Mm -hmm. and to discover not just this place, but as you said about Bourdain, want to travel with Bourdain to some place. 
So you were taking a, a trip with the person whose book you were reading. And I think that's, it's, it's a far different animal than just reading the glossies in, a, in the travel section of a newspaper. Yeah, and I, I think you have classic, you know, Jan Morris is seen as a travel writer, but she, a lot of her books are just about cities. You know, they're about a, a single city. Uh, and so I think even within this literary genre, there's a lot of different ways to get into a place. And I guess one question that we can look at is, um, how has armchair travel changed now that the places we everybody, visit can talk back? And, and everybody travels. Yeah, everybody travels, and then people, you can go to Nigeria or India or Korea and, and, and assess a place, but then people living there can can also write about their own experiences. So um, I guess... Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you, if you look at, there's a new magazine um, that Amy and Gigi Alexander started called Panorama, and I think that's a really, really interesting example of what's happening now that it's not just like the white Western point of view on all of these places that didn't have, you know, now they, you can have a Twitter account wherever you are, right? So now everyone has a voice if they have access to the internet. Um, so this magazine is, you know, like taking travel writing to look at sort of crossing cultures no matter where you're from. So half the masthead is, is you know, like um, from Africa, from Asia, from, from all over. Um, so the perspective is not like one dominant perspective in the world looking at the rest of the world, but from, and from all cultures looking, you know, I think that's, that's really very interesting in terms of what's happening with um, how we used to think of travel writing and how the possibilities of travel writing has now. Well, I mentioned Nigeria and India specifically because you are hearing uh, specific voices uh, that might be categorized as travel or place writing coming out of those countries now. And we can get to that in a second. But um, now that we've sort of defined travel writing, what are some of the common criticisms that we see leveled at travel writing? It seems you know, before we actually started this conversation, I was talking about how every year there's one or two sort of travel writing is dead or travel writing is bad or, or travel writing has betrayed its mandate type articles that critique travel writing. And one of the problems I have with those articles is often they don't encompass where travel writing has been and what it is and, and how it might, you know, differ from the Cappuccino and Kathmandu place, or like Eddie says, it's, you know, about place. So I, I, I wrote down some of the common critiques of travel writing and you can just, you, you guys can sort of chime in uh, according to, to what stands out to you. But one is that it is dishonest. You know, it, it, historically, people could go to a foreign country and say whatever they wanted about it because nobody would check their facts and people hadn't gone there. And that still happens to a certain effect, a certain extent. One thing I think that Panorama Journal is trying to address is the essentializing or exoticizing or sort of post-colonial idea of the, the, the Western writer speaking too much for the people who are in these places. Um, and the idea of talking back to that. So there's sort of a post-colonial critique of travel writing. There's also the idea that it's too commercial, that it's too solipsistic, that these memoirs are, are just about the inner soul of the person and they don't do enough to report a place. There's the opposite of that, which is that travel writing has this false objectivity that doesn't reveal who is telling the story. Another thing that Eddie was alluding to, there's, there's the sort of Western white male stereotypes. Uh, and then there's the limitations that travel writing is sort of a about what middle-class recreation and there's other narratives uh, for, from uh, refugees, immigrants, uh, laborers, soldiers, sailors, people from different uh, classes that aren't necessarily getting told. That's a lot of stuff. And um, just feel free, any of you, to chime in on, on how these critiques are valid and how they might be limited in a certain sense as, we're, as we try to figure out what is good travel writing. Well, as for the dishonesty factor, sure, of course it's dishonest. And that is probably the single most pertinent criticism that has been hurled at me on a personal, in a personal way. And I don't mean in book, the book review section, but people personally attacking me because my books have talked about a place that people have in their imagination and they think that is the real place. And what I try to explain to my critics is that I'm not writing about Africa and I'm not writing about Harlem. I'm writing about my Africa and my Harlem. 
these places which are totally subjective to me. And if you want to write about Africa, take your trip and <laughs> write your book about it. So the dishonesty factor is, it's a ridiculous criticism because I'm writing about my experience in this place, but it is also legitimate in that I am not describing the totality of anything, nor can anyone. I, I wonder, Eddie, if some of the critiques that will, that were leveled at you for a book like Native Stranger, where you went to Africa as an African-American, are part of the problem with those critiques is that they encompass certain like post-colonial assumptions about how you as a black man should see Africa. Um, and so do you think sometimes the critique itself can get in the way of honest, the critique of travel writing can get in the way of honest reporting? Um, I don't know if it gets in the way of the honest reporting of the story because the writer can only do what the writer can do, but it certainly gets in the way of an honest discussion about the subject matter. And if you can include black Americans in the post-colonial description, Sure, because they, the criticism is that my revelations, my personal revelations of a particular place somehow are not the honest ones, are not the ones that they expect me to bring to the conversation. So in a certain sense, they're, we're flipping that post-colonial criticism on, on its head because they, the critics, are coming at me with a definition of what this exotic place is supposed to be. And I am attacking that definition. And therefore, I am the anti- You haven't delivered, yeah, you haven't delivered what they want, right? Right. I think um, so much of, it's, she, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, Chimananda Adichie wrote, uh, had that TED talk about the dangers of a single story. And mm -hmm. I think for a long time, I, I believed I was supposed to have the single story as a travel writer. Like if I was writing about Burma, I was supposed to have it all figured out. If I was writing about Costa Rica, I was supposed to have it all figured out. But the, the idea that we each have our own story and that it's not going to be the only story about any of these places, whether it's my hometown in New Jersey or Costa Rica, um, that you know, that story is valid and it has to be taken in consideration with all the other stories of Costa Rica who, from people who grew up there, from people who visited there, that it's not, you don't, you're not responsible for the entire story. And if readers hold you responsible for that, then that's their issue, right? Like I wrote The Blind Masseuse, um, which was my first book, a travel memoir, you know, like really grappling with this, this idea of like whether or not I had the right to even tell the stories of these cultures that weren't my own. And that's like pretty much the premise of the book. And, you know, I still got Goodreads reviews from people who were like, oh, white woman going, you know, off to the third world and having her opinions about it. And that's not cool. Like, fine, there's, there, that's going to happen. You just, you're going to, you're going to get critiques that are, you know, based on people's expectations of, you know, who you are and, and where you're going. But, um, you know, we're, we're only responsible for our own perspectives and our own stories. So that's all we can do as travel writers is, is be honest with, with our experience. Yeah, I, I agree, Alden. And I, I just want to read something here that I have in front of me. You know, Grantha last year came out with an, an issue, a Journeys issue, and they asked a number of travel writers if travel writing was dead. And I just want to read a paragraph that Colin Subrin wrote um, kind of addressing these critiques. He said, there is a supposition, too, that travel writing is a post-colonial presumption, a notion that reduces all contact between first world and third world cultures to a patronizing act of acquisition. No mention here of travel as an avenue of understanding, of self-education, or of empathy. Any meeting between unequal worlds is seen in terms of dominance, a notion that threatens to turn all human contact into paranoia. And I just think that's a that's a, just a really eloquent uh, addressing of, of some of those criticisms. Right. I think you you know you always have to be aware of your position, right, and your position of privilege in the history of whatever right. cultural right. dynamic that you're in. Yeah. But, but as long as you're aware you of that, yeah, right. there's nothing you can you can't change that. So you have to oh. understand it, see it as a filter through which you're understanding the world, and and report accordingly. Right. You, it's not that you're not allowed to have an opinion. Right. And, and to do the necessary preparation, you know, to, to don't go to a place unprepared, you know, learn as much as you can before you get there. 
And then when you get there, talk to as many people as you can and, and just, you know, be open and curious and respectful. You know, that's all you can do. In that, in that case, I am, I am the number one sinner because I never, ever prepare before I go. <laughs> uh, I mean, and partly, and partly I think it's because I don't want other people's preconceptions to damage my own or to damage my filter or my non-filter system. I know exactly. I know exactly what you mean, and that's why I never read recent travel books about a place I'm going. <laughs> I read old travel books about a place, <laughs> but that doesn't stop me from reading novels and 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 about the history and and memoirs and other things. Well, right. Not... No, that's interesting too because what I do is delve into that sort of history after afterhand. I do my experience, and then I try to figure out what it all meant. You know, Eddie, I do, I do the exact same thing. And I think it's for the same reasons. Like, I don't like to decide what my experience is going to be like before I get there. Mm -hmm. I want to like have the experience. And I've actually written about how that's really, you know, like come back to haunt me in certain situations where I should have known about certain, you know, like I went to Cochabamba when there, it was the middle of the Cochabamba water, water wars. And I had no idea because I hadn't done any research and I wound up getting like rocks thrown at me at a demonstration and I probably should have done a little more research than I did in that case. But I think there's a difference between like doing a lot of research about the country before you go or the culture before you go and just being aware of the cultural positioning that you have within the culture. So like, for example, going to Cambodia as an American, like it really, you know, it means something when um, there's been a war from, you know, in our country that took place illegally in that country and, and devastated it in so many ways. Like, it's really important to know that before you go to Cambodia, I think. So so just that sort of the cultural dynamic is um, is something that we, we should always be aware of when we're traveling. Well, this is how much? Or not. But, how, but how much? How much, if you, had, if you had researched before going to the water wars, would you have gone in with the same sort of open-eyed no, I wouldn't have. You're right. Would you, I wouldn't or would you, have. Or would you maybe not even have gone? That's a good question. I think um, I definitely learned a lot more, a lot more, more quickly because I, I was ignorant. But, um, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe there's something to be said for that. Tom, you're a planner, right? You sometimes you, you arrange interviews and do some research in advance, don't you? I do. I do a lot of research in advance. And I don't think it, I don't think it interferes with the kind of uh, open and impromptu experiences I have when I get to a place. You know, Paul Theroux wrote in, in The Pillars of Hercules, nobody's ever described the place where I just arrived. And it's true, no, it really, no matter how much you read about a place, you know, nothing prepares you for that, that visceral experience of being there. So, you know, I, I just always, I think when I arrive someplace, um, yeah, nothing, nothing has prepared me for it. And, the more I know about a place, the better I'll be able to communicate with the people. Um, if I arrive and I, it turns out I start talking to people and they realize I don't know a thing about their history, I don't know a thing about what's going on politically, um, they're, they're not, they're not going to have much time to talk to me. Mm-hmm. But if I have, can have an intelligent conversation uh, from the get-go, I think um, I'm going to have a better, I'm going to have a better experience in the place. I might bring up another issue, which is the idea of being more memoiristic. And both Eddie and Alden have talked about how they're really more framed uh, on a more personal and memoiristic lens. How do this is another issue of balance? How does one balance um, sort of the interior gaze versus reporting? Uh, A lot of critiques of books like Eat, Pray, Love have been about. It's seeming self-absorption of the narrator in in these foreign countries that might have, um, you know, bad things and, and bad issues that are greater than the, than the crisis the narrator is going through. That was a very popular book, but a lot of criticisms were leveled at it. So, how does one strike the balance between avoiding too much solipsism, solipsism, and um, looking out versus looking in? I think the key is is balance, that word balance. I think um, <clears throat> if you look at a book like, um, you know, we, we love to critique Eat, Pray, Love, but people love that book. Millions of people loved that book. And I think it was much more about um, about her than it was about the places. But um, I, you know, 
definitely made people want to go to eat Italy and eat pasta. And <laughs> it made me want to go eat some pasta. Or Bali. Uh, but if you, look, if you look at – what's that? Or, or Bali. A lot of people have or Bali. literally gone to yeah. Bali because of that book. Right. And if you look at something like Cheryl Strayed's Wild, which I'm actually writing about – I'm writing a book about that book right now. Um, it's it's about the Pacific Crest Trail. And, you know, they actually – the PCT had to – initiate all kinds of new regulations to keep the traffic down after that book came out because it was suddenly so popular to hike the Pacific Crest Trail um, because of the book. So obviously it generated interest in the place, but it was much, much more about her grief over her mother's death and trying to get over that. It was the personal narrative. But I think what that does is give two sets of readers an in, right? Like it gives the people who are trying to, you know, like understand something about their life or about grief or about how to get through things um, who don't care at all about hiking. Like it gives them an, an in and then it gives people who are like, Oh, a hiking memoir. I love hiking who don't really have, you know, a lot of thoughts about the personal elements of it. It gives them an in and they discover that they like the other side of it. Right. So I feel like that to me as a travel memoirist is really the key is finding that balance between like the, you know, every store, every good story is two stories, the story of the place, and the story of what happened to you as the result of being in that place. Do you think that there is maybe, Alden, an eat, pray, love-driven pressure to f sort of put women writers into a more of a memoiristic hole? I mean, you're obviously, you've, you've volunteered to be mem memoiristic in your writing. Um, but we do, like, if you look at the journalism world, um, probably two-thirds of the bylines coming out of the Syrian war are from women reporters. Mm. Um, and it, it and it's sort of a it's sort of a lower profile world. You don't you don't usually think about the byline when you're reading news about Syria. Maybe when it's long form, mm -hmm. um, is is there a weird divide between like the journalistic world that women in, in, inhabit and the travel writing world, or is that just a, a generalization and, and you see exceptions too? Uh, that's a great question. I don't do a ton of journalism, but the stuff that I do is more like opinion pieces or think pieces. So I think that might show a bias towards that kind of, you know, who's looking for work from me, like they're looking for um, more of the personal experience kind of thing. Um, but I don't know, I still think that when we think when we picture journalist, we still we still have a conventional idea of what that means. And it's usually male. Um, but I, I definitely like to hear what other people think about that, because I'm no expert. Well, I know that a couple of books that could be considered travel but not necessarily uh have focused on mozambique in the last year year and a half one is uh rowan garrity's go tell the crocodiles and one is stephanie haynes's white man's game uh, stephanie's book is sort of an, an investigative journalism about the idea of conservationists going into places like gorongosa in, in mozambique and trying to trying to conserve wildlife in a way that can sometimes baffle mozambicans um, whether or not her book qualifies as travel just because it's in Mozambique uh, or not, I guess that goes back to the definition of travel writing. Um, I would say that that the the Liz Gilbert or even the um, the Cheryl Strait books would fall into a travel category more easily, maybe than 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 Stephanie Haynes's book about about uh, conservation in Mozambique. So and maybe it's a question we can't answer again of the categorization. Um, is does does the does the mix of memoir and, and reportage define travel writing, literary travel writing as we see it, uh, or are there other variables mm -hmm. at hand? Well, I think the trap is the categorization, and I, I know when I teach travel writing or teach writing, one of the things I try to impart is that it's your story. You tell whatever story you feel like telling, and the more we talk about what is and what is not travel writing. I think is an attempt to, to pigeonhole all of us to, and to define what good travel writing is. And there is no definition for it. And every writer should be able to write his story about that particular place or that particular journey without worrying about, am I fitting into the canon? Am I fitting into the proper definition? Ultimately, comes down to what sort of good writing, good writer you are. Yeah, yeah, and the publisher will categorize it for you. So. 
Yeah, it's interesting that a lot of the big names, for example, from 19th century travel writing, or at least the big the big male names, um, are novelists who were traveling. Mark Twain, Henry James, Charles Dickens um, probably didn't see themselves as travel writers, yet wrote of their travels in a way that was that was memorable in, in, in ways that are still read. Um, well, in the 20th century, too, Ralph. I mean, George Orwell, Huxley, mm-hmm. Evelyn Wall, Graham Greene. Over travel books. Right. And you look, I mean, Flaubert, I teach uh, Flaubert in Egypt in my exoticism class. And um, it's a, I think about how horrified he would be because Flaubert thought travel writing was such a base genre, right? Like (laughs) um, it was, he was a novelist and that was serious literature and travel writing was not something he aspired to. It was considered frivolous and, and just not that serious. Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack in in Flaubert. I think that was adapted from his letters home, right? Um, it's it's his letters and uh, letters that he wrote, and letters um, his travel companion wrote, and his diary entries. Yeah, yeah, and and in so much of his reportage of Egypt is really, I think, sort of trying to troll his friends back home about how <laughs> liberated it is there. You know, right. there's, there's just a lot of sex or like suggestions of sex. Um, I mean, that's how you bring different lenses of criticism to anything that anyone wrote. Alden, you alluded to this, that your good reads are going to eventually um, have, well, um, white lady in, in Latin America generalizations that you can't really argue against. Um, maybe even like Eddie um, got criticisms, you know, African-American guy in Africa, but he's not saying the, the nice rosy things we want him to say about mm-hmm. Africa. Um, it almost seems like... Once we get the travel writing label, we're inevitably going to get all sorts of um, categories of criticism that, 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 that once the label is attached to you, then it's hard to avoid certain kinds of criticism. D- does, does that seem fair or is there a way to write a book that is, that is universally celebrated in the way that Anthony Bourdain seems to be universally celebrated for his TV reportage? Well, I, I think I mentioned earlier in Patagonia, and I think that book um, was celebrated, you know, by, by people who work in so-called more serious genres, you know, that novelist and everybody else called that a, a, a real work of literature. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are all different kinds of, of, of travel books, and, and they, they range from high to low. I agree, well, and, and I think that with, like, back to Anthony Bourdain's focus, like, I think the fact that he wasn't, like, I'm Tony Bourdain and I'm going to Vietnam just for fun to see what it's like to tell you all about it. He was going with the mission of finding the best noodle shop and, you know, like experiencing the the culture through food. And that sort of takes the pressure off him, right? Like he's not trying to explain anything. So the cultural commentary was just the, like the cream, right? Because that's of course what made it so great. But um, that wasn't his mission, right? His mission was was about the food, so it didn't. Uh, there wasn't as much pressure on him to to tell that you know that overarching story about Vietnam or wherever he was. Uh, but yes, I do think that that we as travel writers, um, there's some automatic criticism, especially when you're coming from the dominant culture, and um, that's just a challenge that we have to take on. We have to we have to use that as part of our story. I think. I don't think it's such well, a deterrent. I think one of the pitfalls, and recognizing again that I don't know Bourdain's TV show, but I suggest that part of the success of that show was his quest for what we think is authenticity. And I think one of the pitfalls of this business is either falling into the authenticity trap or falling out of it. And if you fall into it, in a certain sense, we are the colon- the post-colonial or the colonial who is trying to, re- to fix this place in a time that is more nostalgic, as opposed to describing this place that has evolved. And so when Bourdain goes to the best noodle shop in Vietnam, part of the attention of his viewing public is, oh, that's what I think of when I think of Vietnam. But if you really go to Vietnam, you will not just see that noodle shop, but you will see a modern, thriving economy. And that's sometimes where the jarring 
the jarring effect comes comes from. We look at this sort of individualistic way of describing Africa or describing Harlem, and we want Harlem and Africa and Kathmandu to stay fixed in our imagination the way we think it ought to be, and we refuse to let those places evolve. Yeah, I think one genius of Bourdain is that he he subtly pushed back against some of those stereotypes. Um, and again, in a, in a sense, he had no choice but to reduce certain places to their food, but he was able to salt in other information and, and then go against that insidious authenticity of expectations thing that we come up against. And that really, I think Pico Iyer was one of the first writers, and that this has been a generation ago now, um, to introduce the idea of, well, well, let's see these places for, for what they are. Let's see how East blends with West and West blends with East and, um, and not get too caught up. Uh, in our categorizations, and I, I don't know how, I don't know what kind of report card Bourdain would get on that because I haven't seen enough of his shows, but I do know that there was a there was a subtlety, and an honesty that you didn't see in most places. Now, well, I, I do want to shift now to the idea of of a what what constitutes good travel writing, and I think we've we've hinted at it a little bit, but I want to hear more about it. And and b what what does the future of travel writing look like? Good travel writing is like any good writing. It's what the reader wants to read or what makes the reader keep turning those pages. Does that, does that have a, a, a duty? Like what kind of duty does the travel writer, obviously a novelist can write about a place and, and use imagination, but the, the travel writer has more of a repertorial duty. So what kind of duty does a person who writes beautiful sentences have to the people who live in the place that he's writing beautiful sentences about? I think you have to imagine any reader of your work. I think it used to be easy for writers of glossy magazines to only imagine a certain kind of reader for their work. But I think for me, it was like kind of revolutionary when like Facebook took over, you know, like the way that we communicate. And I realized that some of these people in this small, tiny town that I lived in for a year in Costa Rica might actually someday read my work, right? Like back when um, I lived there, I thought I would, you know, they didn't have telephones, much less internet. Um, So being able to imagine a reader, if I'm writing about this town in Costa Rica, which I have a lot, um, not just from, you know, Boston, Massachusetts, but someone who, who grew up in that town. And I want both sides to be able to recognize, you know, recognize this world if you're from that world, and be interested in it and feel like you've learned enough about it to, to really inhabit it if you've never been there. So that's for me, it's like being able to, to go to, to please both sides of your readership. But is that, is that not paralyzing in some, in some way? I think in the beginning it was, <laughs> but I think uh, that's, that's the key with, I, this is, I talk about this um, in just in general memoir writing with my students that you have to be able to, Create a world that's that's recognizable to someone who who has lived in this world, but also um, interesting and complete to someone who has never stepped foot in this world. Sure. Whether that's your your childhood home or the town of you know Boston, Massachusetts. But recognition and and being pleasing are not the same thing. And you can be you can write about this place. I mean, think back to when you wrote your first sex scene in your in your magical realist novel, if you have your mother in the back of your mind reading your book, it's going gonna, it's gonna <laughs> to hold you back from writing that sex scene. So if you're thinking about the villagers in Costa Rica who might one day read your book and you want to make sure they're happy about your book, it may not be as honest a story as you want it to be. I don't think they need to be happy about it. I just think they need to recognize it and think that it's it's real. I don't like to imagine my mother when I'm writing a sex scene. <laughs> but, um, you know, like I think in terms of an actual physical place that exists that anyone can, can walk into, that that's the kind of thing um, that you do have a responsibility to um, to represent, not just from your own perspective, but from from an objective, as objective a perspective as you can. That sounds like a great writing prompt for you guys who teach writing. Uh, write a sex scene, f- you know, for the audience of your mother. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be doing that one. <laughs> I-, I recently talked to Paul Theroux uh, for this podcast, actually, and it was just interesting to hear how um, 
That's not, I, I think he, he feels an ethical duty to be true to the places he visits, but he's not at all concerned about how his his work will be read in these places, is that he's 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 not sort of pussyfooting around how he feels. I mean, he's almost famous uh, for, for, for being yeah. that way. Um, and interestingly, I don't think he reads much criticism about himself. Like he's sort of, his reputation is, is sort of this crabby guy, um, but... I think he's just a person who doesn't waste a lot of time. Maybe this is why he's able to write a book a year. He doesn't waste a lot of time reading his critics, you know, or, or, or thinking about this too much. Uh, Tom, you've been sort of quiet. What, what's your take on this? Um, well, I, I think good travel writing is, is travel writing gets beneath the surface of a place, obviously. And, um, you know, and, and is honest about a place. You know, one of the criticisms leveled at travel writing is that it's always so positive. You know, it's always... Yeah. Very rosy, and I always tell students that you know you, you have to you have to tell the good with the bad. And the advantage that writers have over, say, photographers is that you know no magazine is going to put a picture of a slum, you know, in the in the in their pages, especially not on their cover. But a writer can write a a, a beautifully descriptive paragraph about a slum, and you know that's that's the beauty of writing and and um you know there's there's really no reason unless again you're writing for the glossies and your editor is not going to allow anything negative to go into it and i've had somebody who has written for glossies i know that that's often the case um but you know when, when you're writing travel books um you know you you just have to be you have to be honest and yeah you don't really worry about what the people in the place are going to think you just hope that they recognize what you've written to be at least your reality of the place i think sometimes it's good to avoid prescriptions too you know like there, there's some some corners of american of the american chattering class that suggests if you go to a poor country you should write about the fact that it's poor you know that you should focus on some sort of socioeconomic inequity um, but I think that can also be a way of essentializing. You know, I, th I think that there, you, if you go into a town, and this could be a, a challenge, like, well, which person do you talk to? Actually, Paul Threw and I talked about this, too. He talked about how it's easier to write about towns than cities because he, he says you can see a figure in a landscape in, in more rural or, or smaller areas, which is coincidentally the name of his uh, newest book, Figures in a Landscape. Um, but it, it comes down to it. Like, who are you going to? I think a, a lot of times going back to Eddie's point about authenticity is that we're looking for the peasant bent over harvesting rice and we're ignoring the guy wearing Nikes who has the same job as us, who's part of the middle class right. of that country. In, in a certain sense, unless we're, unless we're language masters like uh, Jeffrey Taylor, who I've hung out with with Eddie before in Paris, um, we are sort of beholden either to limited English or to um, uh, hanging out with people who speak better English than we speak their native language. Now, Alden, you, you're fluent in Spanish. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess there are exceptions. You can't – I mean, like how is it – how it would be different if you traveled, uh, you know, to write about um, Cuba or Costa Rica than to travel to a place like maybe Bangladesh or Myanmar where you don't speak the language? It's actually um, something that kept me from traveling to a lot of places for a long time because I was so determined to learn Spanish and then, you know, travel in Latin America and I learned French, I learned some Italian. Um, none of this was, you know, all of this was, was for my own sort of academic efforts. And then I always thought I shouldn't really travel to Asia because I didn't, I didn't really speak the language. I didn't speak the language at all. And I don't know why I let myself believe that for so long. And then when I was hired to uh, be a professor on semester at sea, and most of the most of the places that we stopped were in Asia, I was like, why why have I waited so long to come here? But I, you know, the experiences that I had were so completely different there. Um, like one of my most memorable experiences in Cambodia was um, at the Golden Pagoda. The sky just fell out, and I wound up um, like stuck under the eaves with these two teenage monks who didn't speak any English and I didn't speak any Khmer and the the guard was sitting there on his plastic chair and like kind of spoke a little bit of English and we spent like an hour trying to talk to each other and I also had my camera so I was using my they loved that I could show them you know this is right this was in 2006 when 
it was still kind of new to be able to see the image on the back of the camera that had just been taken. So they were like fascinated by seeing themselves in the, in the camera and, and that became a tool of communication. And, you know, it was really, it, it was just a different experience, but, um, but again, you have to be, you know, pretty clear on, on your expectations of, of the, the dynamic of like what you're bringing in to the communication when you speak the language versus when you don't, um, like a lot more is expected of you when you speak the language, not if you speak the language, it's expected that you understand a lot more of the culture, right? Like that's a big thing that Peace Corps volunteers have to learn. Um, if you, if you don't speak the language and you make a cultural error, it's forgiven a lot more often than if you do speak the language, people are like, why'd you leave your, why didn't you take your shoes off before you came in? Don't you know that, you know, that I assume that you knew that because you seem to know what's going on because you speak the language. So, um, you know, there are pros and cons of course, but, uh, but I, I think if you're traveling and you don't speak the language, it's obviously a lot harder to find an in and you do need to find those, those people who can, can help you, um, do that. So that's, again, that's all about angle and filter. It occurs to me that a lot of the mission of a lot of travel writing is sort of making those mistakes on behalf of the reader, sort of working your way right. into a culture, not as a scholar or an anthropologist or an ideologue, but as just sort of this person with a limited understanding who makes these discoveries, these these significant cultural discoveries on behalf of the reader. So I guess our, my, my last question here is... Um, What's the future of travel writing? You know, uh, again, it, it almost feels like the the sailing ship came about and we had this long era of literature of exploration. And then around the time that the railroad came along, we had these, these literary travelers sort of reporting in a different way, the Dickenses and the Twains um, and the Kingsleys and the Gertrude Bells. And then we had the, the jet age that sort of yielded this most recent canonized era of travel writers, which is, which is, um, you know, the Jan Morrises and Paul Theroux's of the world. Um, but now technology has shifted again. We can look into our phones and, and see a, a streaming cam depiction of, of these faraway places and people can talk back to us. So if we look into the crystal ball of travel writing, knowing what we know, what are your prognostications? Where are things headed or where sh should things be headed? It's not unlike photography, I think, where now everybody can take a picture of anything or everything and put it on the internet. So in a sense, there's no need to travel with a camera. So maybe there's no need for travel writers unless that travel writer can bring something extremely personal and different to the story. Yeah, I'm not sure if we can define the future because I think, I feel like it's busting open. Like, I feel like it's really, when I was just sitting here when you were asking about good travel writing, trying to remember the last piece I'd read that I thought was good travel writing. And the first few things that came to mind were fiction. <laughs> like Garth Greenwell's What Belongs to You takes place in Bulgaria. It's fiction, but it captured Bulgaria so like viscerally. And, and I, um, you know, felt again, drawn to go visit this place. I had no interest in or very little interest in before I read this book because of, of having read this book. Um, I don't think, I think trying to put, uh, labels on it or, or, or parameters on it is when, when we have the problems, right? Like that's when we, we start to, I think it's just, it's just about being, it's writing about place at its, at its core, whether that's a place, you know, very well, but there's some kind of separation between, um, the reader and the place, right? Like the, the reader is expecting to be, to learn something about the place. Um, and so I think that, you know, that it's, that's it. It can be poetry, fiction, nonfiction, glossy travel writing. It's all about the discovery of a place, whether that discovery is simultaneously on the part of the writer or the persona and the reader, or if it's, you know, on behalf of the, the reader. But I think part of, part of the question isn't just what about the future of travel writing, but what about the future of travel? Because travel now is so easy. It's so ubiquitous. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's going every place, which is why plane travel is so uncomfortable. Every plane is packed with people. 
travel is common. And maybe travel has been or is going to be so diminished because everybody can, can do it, everybody is doing it, that it won't mean anything anymore. The same as the, 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 the almost universal usage of English as the lingua franca everywhere now. How much of what we do as authentic travelers going to change because travel is no longer travel writ large? So I'm reluctant to answer a question about the future of travel writing because I think if you'd asked this question 40 years ago when travel writing was having another heyday, you know, with Grant of discovering writers like Bill Bryson and Richard Kapuscinski and Jonathan Rabin, um, nobody would have said that, well, in 40 years, we'll probably we'll have this guy on TV who goes around the world and sits down and eats with people and tells us about their culture. Um, so, you know, who knows 40 years from now, but I, my, my hunch is it's going to be a more visually uh, centered genre. I, I've seen that. I've seen that happen already, and I think a lot of times the the break in writers who fall under the category of travel, which we've sort of ag agreed is, is 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 a very vague categorization, um, they're coming in through the blogging world, which is very multimedia. Um, in fact, uh, um, Alden was talking about Panorama Magazine. Um, it has a lot of international writers. There's a lot of Nigerians or, or people people who are part of the Nigerian di diaspora who are doing interesting travel stuff. A lot of them are women, uh, and they are not getting their foot in the door through the South Florida Sun-Times or Condé Nast Traveler or a book. They are doing it as bloggers um, who, who are mixing uh, video, maybe even podcast, photography, which shares an Instagram stream, lifestyle advice and narrative uh, in a way I think that the old gatekeepers like Granta have have given way to a more of a sort of roll your sleeves up and 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 show the world on your own terms. And I, you know, there's a lot of problems with with blog writing because it's not edited. Um, but it feels like, to Tom's point, um, a lot of these stories have a very strong uh, visual or audio visual element. I don't know if anybody else has seen this. Yeah, definitely. And there's also like um, the there's a financial payoff for blogging that didn't used to be there. Like I have a friend who um, works as, a, as at an advertising agency and one of their clients is a cruise line and they look for travel bloggers that have a certain number of followers and offer them free cruises, right? Like that's, that's something that I've never, I've never been able to figure out how to get that kind of thing in uh, exchange for writing. Um, well, that creates that, its own yeah, ethical problems though, right? It does. It does. Yes. It does. I mean, I don't know what the if they have any paperwork they need to sign saying they're only have a positive experience, but I don't think they do. I think it's just yeah, but I of course I think that's that's always been an issue in travel rating is when do you when do you accept something for free, knowing that the expectation is a positive review. That's something we, that's ground we haven't even covered in a way because we've moved away from commercial into literary travel writing and Probably most travel blogging is firmly on the commercial side, travel advice, um, uh, pictures of places where you can go. Yeah, so I, I guess that, that sort of tempers my thought is that you have people doing interesting um, interesting multimedia work at the blogging level, but I think we still need gatekeepers. What do you guys think? I mean, we need somebody to say, okay, Anthony Bourdain is the talented guy that we're going to put on all of our screens. Or, you know, Cheryl Strait is the person who we're going to... Not that she she was that vested in the blog world, but that people are going to me. I guess this 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 might go into the to the the last question. I promise, which is, is is there a canon anymore? Can we have a canon of travel writers? We have we have sort of the uh, the the Evelyn Waugh, Graham Greene types. We have the the Jan Morris, Paul Theroux, Pico Iyer generation. Will the 21st century yield a canon or are we past the point of even having a centralized authority that can decide on a canon for, for good travel writing? That's a great question. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> the, the, short answer, the short answer is, as long as I'm on the list, yes. <laughs> so, so we could create a four-person canon right now. The, the Alden Eddie Tom Rolfe canon I'm of in. the 21st century. 
High five, everyone. But I think um, I think it's just always a surprise, you know? Like, who knew that Cheryl Strayed's Wild was going to be so hugely successful, you know? And the canon is just created by interest, right? Like, I don't think we're not we're not in an era anymore where the name is just going to carry you through. Like, Paul Theroux is not going to exist right now. You know, the new Paul Theroux is not going to happen in 2018. But um, but I think single books are going to like just pop out as important travel books. And I think a lot of them are going to be things that weren't necessarily written as travel books. I've been speaking with the, the, the canon of 21st century travel writers, <laughs> Alden Jones, Eddie Harris, and Tom Swick. All right. Well, thanks for chatting, Thank guys. All. I know that Tom thanks has to run off and, and take a, a travel trip up the Miami freeways. So uh, I'll let you beat rush hour. And Eddie, uh, you're, right. you're in France. You probably have to go to bed pretty soon. So I'm already in bed now. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, then we should have done this. We should have done this as a video podcast. He could have just been bed, bedtime, bedtime with Eddie. I like that. I like that as an idea. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to the travel writing of Eddie Harris, Alden Jones, Thomas Swick, and Anthony Bourdain, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.